Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? We've been preaching through the book of Corinthians topically. I said last week or the week before that when you preach through the book topically, you go chapter by chapter. There are times when we just want to skip over a chapter because it's not our favorite chapter in the world. And it was almost like um, I really wanted to skip over this chapter because it certainly isn't the f- my favorite chapter in, in the world. And you can understand it when we look at chapters 5 and 6. And so we're going to be looking at chapters 5 and 6. Sorry, I think I said 6, but chapters 5 and 6 within the scripture here. But what you realize as Christians is that we need, never need to apologize for the word of God. Because the scripture says that the Bible is there for our benefit. And hopefully this morning as we look at uh, the third mark of a spiritually wise and mature believer, we have to look at Paul. And we have to look at how this man navigated through the issues of the church here. And in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians um, we see that Paul laid a wonderful foundation where he spoke about how every single believer stands in the grace of God because of the Lord Jesus, and he developed that truth. And then we see that as we went along, Paul started to speak about some elements of difficulty within the church at Corinth. And you will see that the church at Corinth was a multi-national um, church or international church like ours. You, people from all over came because it was a very, very popular city to be in. And people were looking for fellowship and they came to this church similar to ours. But within that church, you started just to see some um, sinful practices Develop. You saw within the church that there was a real sense of worldliness where people formed their little camps and their little leaders and, 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 and Paul had to bring them back to Jesus to settle them. And um, he goes on and, and time and time again when Paul deals with a certain issue within the church, we see within the book of Corinthians, he brings them back to Jesus through the gospel. And he does that masterfully. And we see that he does the same here. So he deals with worldliness. That which distracts us from Jesus. Worldliness is not necessarily a sinful practice, but it's that very thing that takes our eyes off of Jesus. It could be a good thing. But if that thing takes your eyes off of Jesus, it becomes an idol within your life. And idols have the potential to destroy us in the end when we start to worship them. Good thing could be our children. It could be our spouse. When we prefer anything else above Jesus, when we put anything else in the place of Jesus or above Jesus, it will break our heart because nothing else but Jesus can satisfy. Nothing else but Jesus. And Paul speaks to the church here about their worldliness. And then he comes and he speaks in chapter 5. And he deals with unrepented sin 
within the church. And as you read chapter 5, Paul says, it is the type of sin that you do not even find within the unchristian world, um, uh, uh, the, the, the world that does not know Jesus. He says, that practice we don't even find here because it is so shameful, but we find it in the church. It was public. No one was doing anything about it. Paul got to hear about it. And Paul steps in and we see that um, the mark of a spiritually wise and mature believer is that the spiritually wise and mature believer lives with the gospel in their heart and the scripture upon their lips. And we see that Paul steps into the church with the gospel within his heart, but the scriptures upon his lips. That's a mark of real maturity. And so when you look at chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians, we see that Paul deals with four moral problems in the church here at Corinth. Firstly, Paul addresses how to handle a person in the church who is caught in unrepentance and in the church, and we see that in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Then he deals with what the church must do to handle shameful sin within its midst. He addresses legal disputes amongst fellow believers in chapter 6, and then he addresses the issue of unrighteous character in chapter 6, verses 6 to 11. And so we see that Paul jumps right into the fire there. He wasn't there to be popular, but he was there to serve the church with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at times when you do that, you will not be popular. Have you ever had a friend come to you and they talk to you about an issue within their lives and you know that if you're going to respond, you're going to be unpopular with them. Anybody else? Have you ever faced that? Of course, I've never faced that within the church. But we see that Paul knew that God had called him to do that. But even when we know that God has called us to do it, there are times when our faith fails us to step in and to bring the correction that God's word teaches us about that Paul tells us in 2 Timothy. He says, God's word is ready and profitable for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. He says all of these things. And Paul knew that as he stepped into the life of the church at Corinth, which he was a founder member of, as it were, that he needed to address these things because he says that sin is like yeast. It will go through the whole batch. And it will destroy. It will tear apart. And Paul knew that if he didn't deal with this unrepented sin within the church, that it had to, the potential to go through the whole church and defile it. And this church is actually Jesus' church. He didn't take the super spiritual view which says, well, it's Jesus' church, just let him deal with it. Have you ever had people say that when they are not courageous to confront? It's Jesus' church, let him deal with it. That's super spirituality that Paul didn't describe to. 
stepped into the very midst of the church here. And he starts to deal with these issues. So that that sin could be dealt with. All the way through chapters 5 and 6. And as we go along, you'll see that in chapters 5 and 6, and Chuck Swindoll says this, and I want to quote him. He says, Paul reminds us that first overlooking serious sin is not loving, it is dangerous. We must commit ourselves to doing what is right even when it is unpopular. Chuck Swindoll says, secondly, confronting serious sin is not optional, but it is essential. Thirdly, dealing with serious sin is not fatal, but should be redemptive. I remember when Jen and I came into the church to take over the leadership of the eldership team as we led the church together. I sat with the elders and I said to them, we will always seek to be redemptive within this church, whatever the circumstance. Always. And it is one of the high values of us within this church is whatever the sin, whatever the problem, to redeem people back into a relationship with God. And we use the word redemption um, in that sense. Dealing with serious sin is not fatal. It is remedial. It means it's redemptive. It's corrective. And finally, correcting serious sin. In this context, it's not external, but eternal. Paul says, God will judge the world outside there. That's not your business to judge the world outside there. Your business is to deal with sin inside the church. Wow! I have no nods on that one. But this is the principle of Scripture within the body of Christ. We're here to help one another through sin. When we sin, it is an act of love to help each other through it. But then we must confront the sin within our midst, and we need to name the sin, and we need to deal with the sin. My friends, the gospel is amazing because when we look at how Paul with the scriptures in his heart and the gospel upon his lips. You'll see that how he deals with this. And uh, you'll find out that um, the gospel is actually the heartbeat of scripture. And so as we deal with sin within our church, yes, the word of God shows us what's wrong within our lives. But the gospel that comes out of the word of God, the gospel which is the very heartbeat of Scripture comes and it infuses and releases life within the situation. And that's where redemption comes from. It comes from the wonderful gospel. And I want you to just journey with me as we see how masterfully Paul deals with the sin within the church here. And then we'll read some of the scripture there that is relevant to us. So firstly, 
call being a spiritually mature believer takes the gospel and we see that whenever the gospel is present, my friends, it reveals the heart. In our counseling with people, in our visits with people, the scriptures should be deeply embedded within our hearts. And the gospel needs to be on the tip of our tongues as we speak to one another. Because as that combination comes together, there is the potential for redemption. And yes, it needs skillful navigation as we walk through our own sin, but also through the sins of others. And in this church, we have seen the testimony of God bringing people out of the pit of darkness after sin had overshadowed them and we've seen them just come through and they're thriving in God. Isn't that a wonderful picture? But my friends, it means that we are faithful to the Scripture, being within our hearts, and the gospel never leaves the tip of our tongues because we speak that into the lives of people and life happens. But it requires courage. It requires prayer. It requires for us to allow the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts. Our last point last week was that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If we are going to be people who practice what we preach, got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then God brings about that movement within our lives to freedom. So we see here the gospel reveals the heart. It's the first point there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that not even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. With his father's, uh, man is sleeping with his father's wife. Apparently that was his stepwife. Stepmother. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out your your uh, and have put out your fellowship, the man who has been doing this? Put out of fellowship, out of your fellowship, the man who has been doing this. Sorry, I was I read this very poorly. Let me read it again. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who is doing this? It sounds harsh, doesn't it? But you will see that Paul is working towards redemption and restoration within this person's life. That is always the goal of this type of activity, to restore people back to faith in Jesus. That's the goal of the gospel. So the gospel always reveals the heart. I've noted over the years that when we deal with issues like anger, issues like pride, issues like lust within the church, and we speak on it, 
people who aren't Christians love to come in because it is issues that they relate to and they will stay and listen to it. But the moment when we started preaching through the Gospels and the Gospel stories of Jesus, Jesus became, as the Scripture says, a rock of offense to them and they stopped coming. Why? Because the Gospel which is inherent in the personality and nature of Jesus, offends them. And it's exactly the same that in the church, when we bring the gospel to people, it has the power to offend. But that offense, if responded in a positive way, will bring to restoration. Paul knew that. Secondly, Paul knew that as he was talking to the church here and wanted to correct the sin within the church. We see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, he says, Your boasting is not good. Under point two, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little yeast levels the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Isn't that beautiful? See what happened in the Old Testament when they were baking bread. Normally, they kept some of the old bread aside before they bake the new batch of bread and they would take the old unleavened batch of bread and they would mix it with the new batch of bread. And Paul says, well, the body of Christ doesn't work that way. Get rid of the old bread. My friends, so many of us are still walking around with the old bread within our lives. And God this morning wants to say to us, let's get rid of, rid of that old bread, that leaven. leaven. Just get... Get, get rid of it, because the two cannot exist together. You see, so, so, so what Paul does, he says this to them, but what he does straight away is that he points them towards Jesus. Whenever the scriptures or the gospel reveals our hearts or exposes our hearts, what the gospel then does is it points us to Jesus. My friends, never Deal with a sin within your own heart or when you call upon to help someone through a sin of theirs. Never leave Jesus out of the equation because Jesus is the one, the only one who can change someone's heart. You cannot change it. Oh, over the years, how I've tried to change my heart. It's impossible. Jesus changed. And over the years, as a pastor, I've tried to change the hearts of people just to understand that I can't do it. It is Jesus who does it. When we preach the gospel, when we share the gospel, when we live the gospel, the gospel points to Jesus. This man who was committing this grievous sin within the congregation who was, as it were, sinning with that person because they tolerated the sin. The end result was for him to be redeemed when he repents of his son. But that's only possible 
when we point people towards Jesus. And it's very hard to point people towards Jesus when we don't know Jesus ourselves. The challenge for us every year as Christians is to grow within our faith in Jesus. And in the book of Jude says that when we turn someone from their sinful way, there's a huge blessing that happens because what is that blessing? It's that just that we get to know Jesus so much better. So the gospel always points towards Jesus. This church is passionate about Jesus. We may be weak in some other areas, but the one area that we're strong in is that we're passionate about Jesus. And we must continue to continue to work on it because in relation and relatively speaking, this church is a wealthy church financially. And when you look in Scripture, in the book of Revelation, the wealthy church in the book of Revelation, its heart grew cold because of its wealth. My friends, the only thing that will save us as a church, a wealthy church, is if we're passionate about Jesus. Otherwise, we as a wealthy church, our hearts will grow cold. We'll still meet together, we'll have our activities, but our hearts will be cold. Jesus is the one who saves us, but Jesus is also the one who frees us and releases us from our sins. The gospel always points towards Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13 says that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved, for it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of who, which name? Ha ha, on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, let Jesus be on our lips constantly. And you will see that when people are in sin, the name of Jesus has the power just to unravel that sin. To bring freedom, not to condemn them, but to free them. When the gospel is within our midst, we seek not to disqualify people, but to qualify people because that's what the gospel does. Can you pick up Paul's heart here? When you read these two chapters, he may sound harsh, but he's not. He brings Jesus in full view of them when you see the scriptures here. Thirdly, as Paul navigates the church through this grievous sin of this man, but also them partaking within that sin and not dealing with it, we see that Paul has a great sense of trust within the gospel because he believes that the gospel truly transforms. The moment we become cynical about the power of the gospel to transform people's lives. We've lost the plot. In this church, a few years, a man committed his life to Jesus. There was real big problems between the husband and the wife. And the wife said to me, I don't believe that my husband had gotten saved. 
And we were sitting in my office, the four of us. I think Jen was there too. And we were just navigating through this thing, problems they were having. But the man, after years of being in this church, responded. And as we sat in the office, she said, I just don't believe he's saved. And you know, I said to her these words in his presence. I said, I don't have the luxury of becoming cynical when people confess Christ. I said, when people confess Christ, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I believe that. Never become cynical about the gospel. The most dangerous people within the church are those who are cynical. We need to get a fresh dose of the gospel within our lives when we are cynical about God's transforming power and work within the lives of people. My friends, Paul knew that the gospel transforms us. And that's why he was dealing with the sin in a very direct way, in a firm way, because he had a greater trust within the gospel. How much do you trust the gospel? When it is preached, I have a great belief that when the gospel is preached to people through lifestyle, through general interaction, or whether it is from pulpits around the world, that Jesus becomes alive to people. I believe that. I've seen it within our church, within our people. When the gospel is preached, people see Jesus. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. The gospel transforms us. Listen to this amazing passage of scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 to 11. Remember, Paul is dealing with the sin within the church. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brother and sisters. Or do you not know? that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral nor idolaters in the Old Testament, and particularly here, idolaters, sexual practices were closely associated with idol worship. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. And here is the gospel. This is the scriptures here. Here is the gospel. And that is what some of you, in the Greek, it is the past tense, period. Not the past continuous sense. tense. Past. It's done. He says, and that is what some of you were. My friends, Paul had enough faith and confidence to believe that the gospel transforms. My friends, I would not be doing what I do if I didn't believe that the gospel really transforms. If I don't have faith that the gospel can turn the sexually immoral around. 
I wouldn't be a preacher. If I don't have the, cost, the, the, the confidence that those who are swindlers, cheaters, that God can change their hearts around, I wouldn't preach the gospel. If I wasn't sure that the gospel can change uh, the homosexual, the lesbian, I wouldn't believe and preach the gospel. I believe the gospel changes people. Amen. I believe that with all of my heart. Thieves, greedy amongst us. My friends, you can talk about some of these sinful practices here, but we need to talk about the greedy amongst us too. All of it within the same. No gray area here. The greedy can be transformed. We preach the gospel for the greedy to be transformed. And so we could look at this whole earth, but for me, what stands out, and I've put it in bold letters, and that is what some of you were. Paul speaking to the church here, he says, some of you have come out of these practices. He says, you know full well that the gospel transforms. What we are implementing, this discipline we are implementing, is so that the person, and even some of you, will be transformed. That is always the goal of the gospel, is transformation. Second Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Verse 21, God made him who had no son to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We don't stay the same way when we enter the kingdom of God. God, through the gospel, transforms us. New identity, a new nature, a new beginning. Some of those practices may take time to be overcome within our lives. I understand that. Some people overcome them instantly. For some, it's a journey. We understand that. That's reality. We've all walked through that. No place for judgment, but there is place to believe the gospel for transformation. That is what you will find within this church. If we believe the gospel and we believe the gospel for ourselves, for Piet Wallace. Some areas, Piet Wallace still needs to be transformed. The gospel will transform you. And then lastly, oh, don't I love this point. As Paul navigates through this complex issue with this man who was sleeping with his stepmother and the church, not dealing with it as a matter of fact, Paul gives us some idea that the church kind of applauds it. It shows you how worldly that church has become. Church that Paul founded, by the way, steps in. And he says to them, the gospel always points towards Jesus. It reveals, well, gospel always reveals the heart. Sin is present. Gospel always reveals your heart. Secondly, gospel points towards Jesus. Thirdly, the gospel transforms us. And then he ends off with, he says, the gospel also claims us. Don't you love that? That's the point that I am most gladly about. I love this point. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. He's working through this whole thing within the church. Spare a thought for him on that day when he wrote the letter to them. He says in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Whoa! The gospel claims us. You do not belong to yourself. God claims you. God claims you. God claims you. You belong to Him. Woman, your body doesn't belong to yourself. It belongs to God. Men, your bodies doesn't belong to yourself. It belongs to God. Come out of the world. This thing, well, my body belongs to me. I can do with it what I want to. No, you can't. If you're a Christian, you can't. You are claimed by God. That's a rule of the kingdom of God. I said a few weeks ago, when you get saved into the kingdom of God, you come into His kingdom. He doesn't become Lord of your kingdom. You step into His kingdom. We're His Lord. He calls the shots. And Paul goes into chapter 7 and 8. And Lord only knows who's going to be preaching on those two chapters. <laughs> he says to the ladies, ladies in marriage, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your husband. Husbands, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your wife. Never heard the congregation this quiet in my life. And those who are not married, they say, yes. <laughs> you see, my friends, the gospel is very different from the gospel of the world. In loving submission, do we surrender our bodies to each other with Jesus being Lord? Amen? Loving submission. Never lording it over my wife and the wife never lording it over her husband. In loving fellowship, we honor God with our bodies. When we're involved in pornography, my friends, we dishonor the temple of God. But the most beautiful thing is that the gospel reveals our sinfulness, doesn't it? It's a beautiful thing. Because for sin to be dealt with, we've got to acknowledge our sin. If we don't acknowledge our sin, forget it. It won't be done with. Acknowledge your sin. The gospel reveals our sin. But thank you, Lord, that the gospel points us towards Jesus. What a relief. Sigh, can you breathe? Because we are sinful. When we look to Jesus, he comes and he transforms us, changes us. Because he says, you belong to me, I own you. My friends, we're going to have a baptism on December the 3rd. When you go through the waters of baptism, you are acknowledging 
that Jesus owns your body. Have you ever heard that angle? I haven't heard it either. I just thought about it now. It sounds good to me. You can challenge me on it if you want. Why the physical act? Yes, we know it speaks of all of the things we've said back then. But there's a wonderful truth. When you go underneath the water, you're saying, my body no longer belongs to me. But it's a resurrected body in Jesus Christ. He claims us. Amen. If you're struggling with water baptism, let that one just use it. <laughs> I can relate to that one pretty good. He owns you. Glorifying with your body. The most basic, elementary way you can do it, but most profoundly, is when you go through the waters of baptism. When you go down, you say, I'm dying to myself and to my own body. It becomes yours. Some of us need to go through baptism again. I'm not proposing second baptisms, okay? <laughs> Tongue in cheek. But he owns us. Do you not know your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not to own your bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies.